You're listening to a GDP Roadshow podcast on the Global Development Primer. GDP Roadshows are recorded live on location at conferences, meetings, and occasionally through chance encounters. No doubt many of us around the world are locked in and locked down amid the COVID-19 pandemic. During this difficult and uncertain time, the GDP Podcast is delighted to bring you a series of Roadshow podcasts with help from the McEachern Institute of Public Policy at Dalhousie University and the Canada International Council, Halifax Branch. These podcasts come from a virtual panel hosted by the CIC and the McEachern Institute, who brought together a virtual panel of experts in public health, risk governance, respiratory viruses, and global health to discuss the current COVID-19 outbreak and its impacts. For the complete panel and the presenter slides, please follow the YouTube link embedded in this podcast. But for now, on GDP, we're pleased to offer you five Roadshow podcasts about the COVID-19 virus. Our second podcast in the series comes from Dr. Allison Kelman's research, which investigates the intersection of host age and previous infection in the context of influenza infection and vaccination. She uses animal models in vitro systems and patient samples to obtain a picture of disease and its mechanisms. She recently discovered that lactating mammary glands are susceptible to influenza infection. Now, this is a very science-based discussion, but we are pleased nonetheless to have Dr. Allison Kelvin's work presented here on GDP, again, in partnership with the Canada International Council and the McEachern Institute for Public Policy and Governance at Dalhousie University. So hi everyone, uh, my name is Allison Kelvin, and again, I'm an assistant professor at Dalhousie University. My research focuses on emerging viruses and re-emerging viruses. So um, this is, these types of viruses are what I study. I'm really interested in how um, uh, the host or your body um, responds to infection and understanding what those responses are to develop therapeutics for the disease that it causes or prophylactics such as um, vaccines. So I wanted to tell you how this started for me um, and because my research um, is focused on emerging and re-emerging viruses, I follow what's called ProMed Mail and um, on December 31st at one in the morning, I was on Christmas vacation and, you know, going to bed late. And I got this email from ProMed Mail saying um, that there was an undiagnosed pneumonia in China and a request for information. And this is a piece from this email. And uh, through this ProMed Mail, which is kind of an infectious disease social network, um, it's, it, they bring out different, anytime there's an outbreak of any infectious disease around the world, ProMed Mail sends out a notification of what's going on um, and what the news is around this outbreak. So this particular one, undiagnosed pneumonia in China, and they were asking um, for requests for information. And this was an urgent notice on the treatment of pneumonia of unknown cause. And of course that set off alarm bells in my mind. How could they not know what um, was causing this, what the infectious agent that was causing this pneumonia. 
And then uh, I went back and, you know, reading through this email, there was a lot of warnings here. And again, we're, we're back on December 30th, 31st. And here it said, according to the above documents, and this is all written in uh, the correspondence, uh, according to the urgent notice from the superior, some medical institutions in Wuhan have successfully appeared patients with pneumonia of unknown cause. And then it gets to me very, um, very moving. Uh, the email says, all medical institutions should strengthen the management of outpatient and emergency departments. So really a warning going out to the world saying that there was this infectious agent causing pneumonia. Um, they didn't know the origin of this and watch out in your hospitals as you have patients come in and be ready to manage those. And of course, this is what we're seeing now. And hopefully some of, some of this um, warning that went out was picked up by um, people in Canada. So on January 9th, which was only about 10 days after, the infectious agents was identified as a coronavirus, um, but this was a previously uncharacterized coronavirus that we now know called to be called SARS-CoV-2. So as soon as this was identified, um, because I have an interest in the, uh, these emerging and re-emerging viruses, I contacted my colleagues. Uh, the first one, uh, Daryl Falzerano at Vito Intervac, and he is a coronavirus um, expert. And, uh, and I also contacted Jason Kinderchuk at the University of Manitoba and my colleagues here at Dalhousie University. So to Daryl, I said, um, can we get the permits in place? So again, this was right after January 9th. <clears throat> can we get the permits in place to study this virus? Um, I think it's gonna be important. Or he said to me, he wasn't too worried about this virus at that time. Um, and then with my colleagues here at Dalhousie, we um, began uh, forming a team to work on this virus, which I'll talk about later. So just for some information, I really wanted my talk to uh, give some information on this SARS-CoV-2 virus and what it's doing to um, our bodies when it's infecting. Us. But to start, I wanted to address what is a virus, just um, to differentiate that from our own cells and from bacterium. A virus, its full definition is that it's a submicroscopic obligate intracellular parasite, which means it cannot function by itself, cannot be active by itself. It is only active once it's inside um, its host cell. So um, basically it's not going to, um, it's not, again, not gonna be active unless it's able to get inside and kind of take over the host cell machinery to make more virus. And this is why we call it an intracellular parasite. Uh, the word virus comes from the word meaning toxin or poison. So a little bit more about the SARS-CoV-2. It is short for Severe Acute Respiratory Coronavirus 2. 
And what the SARS-CoV-2 virus is, again, it's a coronavirus and it's enveloped and you can kind of see the envelope here. Um, and around the envelope are all these protein spikes. Um, and these spikes are what allows the virus to get into the host cell. And actually the word corona came from um, how the virus looks under the microscope, that it looks like it has this crown uh, surrounding it. It was called uh, SARS-CoV-2 because um, the genetic sequence put it most similar to the human SARS coronavirus from the 2002-2003 outbreak. But what was, what's interesting is that these um, coronaviruses, so SARS-CoV and SARS-CoV-2, uh, cause a severe pneumonia. But typically coronaviruses, which there are a couple that circulate in the human population right now, they cause the com a common cold. So typically leading to mild symptoms. Uh, what's alarming though about this SARS-CoV-2 virus is that it's the third coronavirus to cause severe pneumonia, possibly leading to death since 2002. The first one being SARS SARS-CoV, the second one being MERS, um, the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome Virus, and now we have SARS-CoV-2. So um, this is really an indication that we need to start to pay more attention to coronaviruses and how they're spilling over from the animal reservoir into people. So, um, what, what does this do to our bodies? This SARS-CoV-2 virus infects the cells that line our respiratory tract. And these are, they are called epithelial cells. And the reason why this SARS uh, coronavirus uh, causes severe pneumonia is because it infects the respiratory epithelial cells that are in the outer reaches of our lungs down here. Whereas uh, the more mild, um, Coronaviruses are known to infect the upper respiratory tract and not um, typically make it down to the lower reaches. So this virus causes a range of symptoms, which um, asymptomatic uh, disease or asymptomatic people have been noted. But typically, the mild disease that um, is caused by this virus is uh, fever, cough, shortness of breath. And then often there's evidence of pneumonia on x-ray or CT scan. Uh, pneumonia can range from um, being severe, uh, is, is comes in really a range, um, where the more severe cases of this SARS-CoV-2 have severe pneumonia, which leads to acute respiratory distress syndrome or ARDS, and then this can also lead to sepsis and possibly uh, multi-organ failure. So what happens in pneumonia, and you can see in this lower panel, that um, the, the epithelial cell lining of the lung shown here, so this is the lower reaches of the lung, starts to thicken compared to the healthy lung above an A. And then also there's a buildup of fluid and cells in um, the lower reaches of the lung. So that's what we're talking about with severe pneumonia. 
and the um, people who are at a higher risk of developing this severe disease from uh, SARS-CoV-2 are older ages, so over 65, people with type 1 and type 2 diabetes, and hypertension. So I also wanted to give just a bit of insight into the molecular differences between mild and severe disease and what happens when those cells in the lower reaches of our lungs are infected. So here um, I'm showing SARS-2 coronavirus infecting our epithelial cells. And once um, the, this virus infects our epithelial cells, there's this release of cytokines from the cell. And these are protein messengers that are released from the cell, from the epithelial cell, to relay a message to um, our immune cells. And some of these might be inflammatory, and some of them um, might have other play other roles. So after the cytokines are released, these protein messengers, there's this switch in the mild cases from cytokine release to antibody production in our B cells. And here you can see the antibodies being released from a B cell. And the purpose of these antibodies are to go and uh, kind of encapsulate the virus and neutralize it and stop it from being able to infect the neighboring cells around um, the infected cell. And this is how we typically would clear a virus from our bodies. Uh, so stepwise for the mild disease, we go from cytokine release from an infected cell, recruitment of cleanup cells, and then activation of our antibody-producing cells. But during severe disease, what seems to happen is instead of being able to switch to this uh, activation of our anti antibody-producing cell, there's an overabundance of cytokines being released from the infected cell, which um, recruits many inflammatory cells which cause damage to the lungs. And we often call this a cytokine storm. And again, um, this block, somehow the antibody producing cells are being blocked. And this is just a histology, histological section um, showing the difference between the lungs of um, a normal, in a normal healthy animal compared to one that had been infected with, this is the original SARS coronavirus, where there's this thickening of um, the epithelial wall and accumulation of fluid you can see from um, the, the pink staining here. And because of this, there isn't proper uh, gas exchange um, between from the outside to the um, blood vessels inside the organism. So where are we now? Um, this is the John, John Hopkins um, map that was referred to earlier. Um, and this is from today, just a couple of hours ago, looking across the world, really um, obvious. You can see this is what a pa pandemic looks like. The red dots show where positive cases have been identified. And the larger the red dot, the more the cases. Uh, China still has the most reported cases at over 80,000. Um, in total across the world, there's over 450,000 cases with more than 20,000 deaths. 
uh, looking at Canada, we've only have um, uh, just under 3,000 cases reported with 110 recovered and 27 deaths. So uh, we want to be watching these numbers to calculate um, our epidemic or pandemic statistics. So just as a comparison between flu and uh, our other coronaviruses, uh, the SARS-CoV-2 is shown here second. Um, our reproductive rate for this virus has been calculated to be between two and three. So the number of people that a single infected person will go on to infect is between two to three people. But um, what's important to remember is that just as flattening the curve, we have the power to change this reproductive rate by not allowing the virus to spread and be transmitted to other people. So far, the case fatality rates, the number of people that have died from this virus out of the number of people who have confirmed um, to have it is about 3%. Um, compared to flu, the, the statistics are very different. Flu has a lower reproductive rate and a lower case fatality rate. Uh, I guess um, looking to SARS and MERS, they both have higher case fatality rates, um, but these, these were able, MERS is, was able to be um, controlled because it has a very low reproductive number. Um, compared to uh, our SARS-CoV-2. So what are we doing about this? I spoke a bit about our Dalhousie COVID-19 rapid response team. Um, we initiated this team shortly after the virus was identified. So right now, um, these are members of the Dalhousie Microbiology and Immunology Department, and we are members of the Canadian Centre for Vaccinology. So we have a group that's working on vaccines, a group that's working on antivirals, and then a group that's working on point of care diagnostics. So looking at our vaccines, um, uh, Roy Duncan and Chris Richardson have both designed their, um, their own vaccines. Roy Duncan has been uh, collaborating with a company called Entos. He has, a, has um, developed a DNA vaccine, which can quickly be scaled up uh, for human use, which is the advantage of using a DNA vaccine. But of course, um, this vaccine needs to be, we're just starting evaluations now. Chris Richardson, on the other hand, has developed more traditional vaccines, um, which are based around the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein. Dennis Kapersky and Craig McCormick are net right now screening antivirals and small molecules that have been already approved, FDA approved um, to see if any of these can be used uh, for inhibiting virus replication um, or other uh, parts of the virus life cycle. And since because they're sticking to already approved um, small molecules or antivirals, we hope that this will fast track um, the use to humans if they hit a good candidate. And then finally, David Kelvin is working on a point of care diagnostic where he's hoping to um, develop a 
kit to help stratify severe and mild patients by evaluating biomarkers of severe disease. Um, so together we're, we're working on this problem and hoping to have some positive results soon.